Hello and welcome to The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategy in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stan, what's up, dude? We're actually seeing each other this time. I know, and you were cracking me up while I was trying to do my intro. <laughs> I'm trying. Also with us on the line, with his triumphant return from that scary place called fatherhood, the godfather himself, Dave Habaga. I-, I have a little bit of a bone to pick with you guys. Uh-oh. Okay, great. <laughs> Did you guys really have to tell the entire Dive Down Nation while I was in hospital with my child that I 04 dropped a league. <laughs> Did you really have to, t- with a league that has won a modern challenge in the last couple of weeks? Did you really have to tell everybody that? All right, dive down nation, uh, exclusive scoop right here. Nobody, nobody has come after me for this on Twitter yet, but embarrassing. Gosh. I tossed and turned all night on that hospital bed because, because of the shame. I like that you saved this for the opening and didn't, didn't like, didn't yell at us and put us on blast before this. I want real emotions. I want authentic reactions. If I could do one thing to bring you down a peg, Dave, Lord knows I will take that opportunity. (laughs) But that's all I have to say. I'm glad to be back. Good to have you, man. All right, guys. Last but not least, we got to introduce our resident snowman, the one and only Zach. Cool hands. Hey, great to be here. All right. That's all of us. Subdued intro there. I'm just not. (laughs) Bring the energy, Zach. (laughs) Okay. On this week's episode of The Dive Down, we're going to take a look at recent tournament results at SCG Baltimore, as well as last week's Modern Challenge. We're also going to do a dive down into deck tweaking and how to adjust for the modern metagame. And then at the end for the wind down, we're going to take a listener question. Let's start the show off like we start off every show. A little bit of housekeeping, and I'm excited to announce some plans that Zach and I have this weekend up in Milwaukee, where we're both competing in a Nerd Rage Modern 5K. Zach, you excited for that, buddy? Yeah, it, it'll be pretty exciting. I haven't been to uh, Wisconsin in like four years, so that's cool in and of itself, and this will be the biggest trim I've ever participated in, so that should be a cool event for me. So like, not even like a PPTQ or anything? No, I've I've hovered on the edge of them. I used to be pretty nervous about attending bigger events, worried if I was good enough or my deck was good enough. But I feel like playing a lot of Magic Online, no joke, has made me more confident and doing better at my uh, LGS as well. Well, I'll tell you what, your deck isn't good enough, but you are. I, thank you, I appreciate that. That's what I keep hearing. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> yeah, keep keep scredding people, but I I think that's uh, I think that's awesome. You know, I remember the first couple of times that i went to tournaments that big and it, it is hard to just kind of keep the focus across nine rounds so that's the main thing man just stay stay excited stay engaged don't get mad if you lose just like get get into it and i think you'll do well yeah i heard yeah, it described sure. as a marathon not a race and i, I think that's a really echo in what you're saying it definitely is yeah it's not a sprint for sure zach what are you gonna do if you don't do well at this tournament well we've, we've discussed it privately but i'm going to sell my entire deck and just Serve from scratch, day one. And just rebuild it slowly. Yeah, exactly. I, I have to re-earn the trophy I had. You're gonna re-earn you're gonna play the same deck again. You're not right, gonna and you're not gonna take that opportunity to switch. No, no, I'm gonna rebuy it in paper and then when I get good at it, rebuy it again in foil. So I will have bought Scred a total of five times in my life at that point. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, you know what they say, fifth time's a charm. Yeah, yeah, the classic saying. All right, let's dive into tournament report with Zach at the news desk. Beep, 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 beep. All right, so there's not a ton of interesting stuff this week, so we're going to go through it. There are some neat deck choices, but no super big tournaments. So we can go right into SCG Baltimore, which was Team Modern as a format. So we'll go through the top eight listed decks and then just talk about any interesting moves with them. So number one was Teamer Phoenix, two, Mono Red Phoenix, three, Grixis Death Shadow, four, Amulet Titan, five, Grixis Death Shadow, six, Dredge, seven, Mono Green Tron, and eight, Burn. So Teamer Phoenix won, which is a weird play on a deck that we have been dedicated to for these past eight episodes. Piloted by Ryan Overturf, right? That's right. Yeah, he killed it. He's a he's a really he's a really really good player. I know. I think people forget when they see him on on the commentary so much that he is a extremely good player. Yeah, and a really good kind of deck innovator, deck kind of tweaker. Like he generally puts his own spin on things every time he uh, he goes out and pilots. So the spin. Let's talk about the spin on this. So basically, like what's like the teamer part is. A singleton Snapcaster Mage, but which is not actually making a teamer. But then there's the Traverse the Uvenwald in green, and some four Mishra's Baubles. So essentially, he wants to be able to like what, like use Traverse late game to tutor up that powerful late game threat, or maybe like a necessary threat, like a thing in the ice or something. I mean, I got to think that he just decided the optionality was worth it. I didn't get to watch any of this particular play. Did Did you guys get to see it or? I watched a few of the rounds. They didn't focus a ton on modern, you know, because it's a team tournament. And so I was essentially just going through the rounds looking for any time they were focusing on modern. So I got to see a little bit of the action late game. Um, more of what I saw was kind of the typical uh, Phoenix gameplay. But, you know, he's able to kind of fish up uh, late game Crackling Drake when it's super huge. And a really cool move I saw him do, just going back to like the great player thing, was... He like cast a surgical on his own spell in his graveyard so that he could then get the other copies out of his library then to make his Drake lethal. That's amazing. Oh, it was super awesome. So it basically made it uh plus four plus O off of sur- surgical extraction by putting the surgical in the graveyard and also putting three more copies of a card that was in his graveyard into exactly. exile. Yeah, exactly. Wow, what a move. Yeah, it was really Keep smart. that one in mind, everybody. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about Traverse here. I mean, I guess the interesting thing about this is that it triggers... One thing to keep in mind, it is a, it's another one-mana spell that triggers Arc Light and Thing in the Ice in addition to what it actually does. So it is just kind of like a... It's almost like a sort of cantrip in some ways, where if you're filling up your yard anyway, you might be really close to Delirium anyway, and then you can just kind of like... Maybe you have an Arc Light and you're... I mean, maybe your hand is something like, I gotta go search up an arc light so then I can discard it with, with, uh, a faithless looting. And that's two triggers. And then you're just kind of like doing it then. So I, it's pretty interesting. I mean, the idea of doing like traverse, snapcaster traverse in the middle of the yes, game or something yes. like that is pretty interesting too. I think that's huge, Dave, with the snapcaster pull. Like if you traverse up the snap and then you can get another spell back out of your yard, both of the spells value and just for casting the spell for like a thing in the ice or arc light deck, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, it's, it reminds me, that kind of play reminds me a little bit of like, um, when these decks used to run maximize velocity. Yeah. Because it was a card that you could turn into two spell triggers with, um, with a blank basically. And that seems like a similar thing you could kind of do here. 
Mm-hmm. His sideboard has some interesting choices as well. I noticed two life goes on, which I can only assume is meant to shore up the burn matchup, since that's a traditionally tough one for Phoenix decks. Also, one fairy macabre, which is very strange, because the only way I think you're casting it is off of Manamorphose. Yeah, but that's not what that card is for. Right, so you're exiling two cards from, from graveyards? Right, and you, you discard it out of your hand, though. So it's a free it's a free way to exile two cards that you can search up with Traverse. Interesting. So he can basically be like, oh, I need to, to get rid of a couple of things quickly, Traverse it, and then discard Fairy Macabre and get rid of two things. Very cool. Right, so then in second place, we saw the Mono Red Phoenix deck, which uh, was very similar to other builds, but this one was running two Bedlam Revelers main deck. I'm into it. This is a very similar to the deck I played at Indy, and it's possible the deck I'll play in Milwaukee, and I really like that two main deck Bedlam. Yeah, it's interesting to see somebody not be afraid of the graveyard hate. Yeah. Like, maybe people are just have just given up on bringing it in against something with just Phoenix, and so now you get that creep where you can bring Bedlam Reveler back in, because Reveler is definitely super powerful in in moments where people don't have Graveyard Hate. Right, and, and Phoenix is a deck that I think struggles when you're in top deck mode, and Bedlam really makes that top deck much better when you rip a card that draws you three more cards. Well, not just Phoenix, but also Burn in general can, exactly. can struggle in top deck mode. This deck went 16 and 0, right? Yeah, he didn't lose a single one. Heard? It didn't lose a single match all the entire tournament, even though their team came in second. So, uh, you know, it doesn't really count for much since it was a team tournament, but still pretty interesting. And the player who played this, I know we can maybe add a link to the show notes. They posted up a pretty good tournament report about how they ended up here on the, the mono red deck and how long they've been playing it and all that kind of stuff, which was pretty cool to read over. Yeah, it was red. Yeah, the day two metagame was essentially everything we've been seeing. Yeah, great. Grixis Death Shadow, is it is it Phoenix, Dredge, Humans, Burn, Amulet Titan? So the next thing we're gonna look at is uh the modern challenge that happened recently, and that was on the third. So the top eight for that was Dredge, Rakdos Burn, Jund, Hardened Scales, uh Red White Prison, Blue Moon, Scapeshift, uh, and then Red White Burn. So the the burn list, the second one, had Light Up the Stage, Skewer the Critics, Shard Valley, which is like sort of the new one that people have been running more of. The Red Right Prison deck is neat. We've seen a lot of these popping up lately with uh, sort of the eight goblins, four Rabble Master, four of the new one from uh, Gils Ravnica. Legion War Boss. Four of Legion War Boss. Just got to try to make a token generator, I guess. That was what exactly. really makes that deck go, huh? Just close, yeah, exactly. just close the game really fast in red. Yeah, I've seen some neat stuff, too, where you can play those goblins with an ensnaring bridge out. So you're making these goblins that can't attack, and then eventually you draw a main deck of braid or what have you and blow up your own ensnaring bridge and swing with, you know, 30 goblins or whatever. I'm sure 30 is an exaggeration, but you swing with a lot of goblins. Interesting. <laughs> I mean, usually what I think you would do, too, is just like hold. Don't you just have to hold a card so that ensnaring bridges trigger is one or less and then you just swing in on your turn as well? Also possible, yeah, but there's other fun things you can do, too, if you want to blow up an ensnaring bridge. But yeah, the idea would maybe be wait, draw a card, keep it, and swing with your 21 ones. No, no, and then it's, play no, it's, it's, so that they can't swing back. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely way cooler to blow up, blow it up. Thank you. I, I thought so, too. As, as we mentioned, I'm going to a big tournament where I expect to get first place, so. Are you trying to get first place in style points? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's what counts, right? <laughs> Zach, big plays, Cullen. Ha <laughs> ha! 
Looking at these two top eights, do you guys feel like the format might be settling down at the moment and some of the new cards from RNA have found their home and people are pretty much established with what the best decks in the format are trying to do right now? Yeah, I mean, we keep, I think, you know, you look at the day two minute game from the team tournament, even though it's a team tournament, it's pretty similar to what we've kind of been seeing and expect. Um, I don't think we're seeing anything too new. I mean, the, the newest thing we've been seeing pop up is like, besides the Arclight deck, of course, is like this colorless Eldrazi list shows up again in 10th and the modern challenge. But then again, there's like three Jun decks in the top 16 of the modern challenge. So who knows what's going on there? The modern challenge is often its own thing. Yeah. yeah. It's always, it always has mid range <clears throat> decks. I think it's just a place where players can really, uh, use their skill kind of like Delta to be able to yeah. win because the players who turn up in the modern challenge every week are like super, super good. Yeah. I agree with you, Stan though. I think, I think things are pretty, I think things are pretty stable. I think it's ripe for attacking in a new, new way. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I, I don't know if I would use the word settle down or anything, but I, I would think that people are, are the new things people are trying. We've seen a little bit and there's nothing completely wild right now. Burn using the new powerful red one drops, quote unquote one drops with spectacle is to be expected. And there's some other stuff that makes sense, but it, it'll be neat to see where it goes from here. Do you guys think there's going to be one, one burn deck that will rule them all eventually out of this? Or are we going to enter a phase where suddenly there's like four different burn decks that people play depending on how they feel? I think a big part of that is the cost of mana base to a degree because black leaf mm-hmm. cliffs is still a $40 card. And I, ah. if I already had pieces to red, white, burn, I don't know that I would go out and spend $160, $200 on lands just to play a... Bump in the night? A very similar, maybe even worse version. Yeah. It is pretty crazy to be in an era where mono red burn with 18 basic mountains is a perfectly viable strategy. I love it. I was playing, I was playing 18 mountains in Hollow Phoenix for a while. And to see it go on in the the different other versions of the red uh, decks is pretty cool. So that covers tournament results for this week. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to dive into our main topic, which is a dive down into how to adjust decks for meta, or as we call, tweaking. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody, and welcome to the Dive Down. This week, we want to explore what it means to tweak a modern deck, whether it's for bigger tournament metas, your local game store, or figuring out how the deck runs its plan as best as possible. So, Stan, what do we mean when we say tweak a deck, do you think? Like, what do you define tweak as? Yeah, so for me, tweaking a deck generally means figuring out how to adjust flexible slots in your main deck or your sideboard strategy for the perceived or expected meta. You're shaking your head no. <laughs> yeah, I'm seeing a big no right now. What were you going to say, Shane? So like, okay, like, so when I say tweak, like I think about like basically adapting a deck or your deck selection to like a given meta game. Wait, 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 wait. Well, my my whole thing is like, <clears throat> how is deck selection tweaking? It's not. It is. It's totally. It's totally tweaking. Mm. 
That's Tweak. not tweaking. No, you mean like that, choosing to play blue white control something. instead of burn? Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. I'm not mean? tweaking my deck by choosing Tron over burn. Yes, I think that's a tweak. That's a tweak no, on how you're that's, planning, that's on, nonsense. planning that's on addressing the metagame. No. I'm glad this is the 1920s and you can just do whatever you want because America doesn't change for the better yet. Okay, but anyway. So, I mean, like, I, I, I look at it as, as deck selection as part of tweaking because you're using all the cards at your disposal to attack the metagame in a certain way, right? So, but more specifically, we are going to talk about kind of adapting a deck to a given metagame, which essentially means like the meta is like the popularity of decks being played at any given time. Maybe that's uh, your local game store. Maybe that's your region. Maybe that's just, maybe that's what you see on Magic Online. So like, you know, if your local game store has got three people, they're always on mid-range. Maybe they're always on Tron. You know, you you know that you have a pretty good idea of what to expect at your local game store, right? Now, how do you guys typically try to assess the metagame? I'm curious what Zach's take is, since he's a player who often plays the same deck. Yeah, I, I think you have to, if you're playing both in paper and online, you have to treat them as totally separate entities. And you can notice trends and you can try to have skills transfer over. But when I'm playing online, I'm seeing decks that I'm consistently not seeing as much as I am in my game store. Like you mentioned, there are certain people who are playing a certain deck. Either that means they're like me and they particularly like it and want to go back to it. Or maybe that's all they want to play, all they have, etc. So I think you're seeing more people on consistently the same strategy or same color identity idea in, in an LGS than you would online. So I think you can sort of consistently plan for an LGS to a degree. Say you know, people are playing tron or people are playing amulet or eldrazi you have an idea that people are playing big mana strategies you can try to be more aware of that and try to plan for that but online there's not a sort of consistent i'm playing this guy every time it's someone different so i think the goal of what we're going to talk about today is how and why you can tweak you know to improve your deck's plan right against the given meta and i think so we're going to explore a few different ways to do that and like it's kind of first to look at why tweak why not to tweak, ways to tweak, tweaking for your local store, and then tweaking for a, a larger tournament. And I think that kind of would, will hit the big hit the big topics on this. Dave, I know at least you and I look a ton at Goldfish when we're pretty when we're playing more actively to try to get an idea of what's happening, both in what's what's winning at tournaments, kind of what the yeah. given metagame percentage is. That's my primary way of not only seeing what larger strategies are win winning, but what individual card choices are being made in those decks as well. Yeah. It's interesting. I sort of don't use goldfish for that. Like I sort yeah. of do my own thing by looking at the the magic basically magic online results. I go to the tournament page. Yeah, you love looking at I look at, magic at it online. every yeah. every time decks come out, I read all the decks for every modern tournament that shows up on the Magic Online tournament results and I do it on the terrible wizards page for some reason. Yeah, I just find yeah, it what, easier what to language are you gonna get today? Exactly. I mean, I think the part of it is just like, I enjoy it a little bit more. If I look at the goldfish page, I just see what the decks are. And then I'm less apt to actually read the deck list. If I'm like, Oh, that's burn. Yeah. You don't, you don't click expand all. Yeah. And it, they just don't get it, do a good job of being like, of being like, here's, here's the card that's weird that showed up in this. So that's, that's where I generally yeah. look for like, this is new stuff that's starting to emerge that could be a surprise in modern. Yeah. And then on the other side, I, when I'm looking at stuff, I look at a star city game results basically on their on their page to kind of see what's going on do we want to talk about real quick how it's it's kind of bizarre or weird that wizards doesn't have someone writing articles about these modern dumps all the time or are they are they just trying not to 
be hand like are they trying to be hands off with that kind of stuff now? Because like there should be someone when these comes out saying what Dave's saying like these cards are doing this right now or this is happening. It's just kind of weird that there's no comment on these lists ever. Yeah, I mean, I think that they're they're leaving space for us to make those comments. Honestly, is what it is. Like it's, I think they they want to to give some fuel to a universe of content creators. Okay, and like so us right now, is, what we're doing actively. Yeah, exactly. So like they're they're and you know they don't have us personally in mind, but they definitely have oh, yeah, they MTG do. Goldfish in mind when they do it. They have sure. you know Jerry Thompson in mind and Brian Gottlieb in mind when they do that kind of, when they put that kind of data out. The thing that they want to don't want to do is put out data that's like too much too prescriptive because then that's where we have soft metas plus they know that people are talking about it on reddit which happens every dump especially on the modern reddit modern magic reddit channel people are always breaking everything down so those are all good ways to see like what's going on with uh, the meta and of course you know a grand prix or a uh, magic fest as they're called now one that's specifically just modern format is always a good kind of like high quality source for information just because those tend to seem tend to feel like the most serious kind of level of results that you can get. Yeah. One of my favorite things coming up is the SEG regionals, like where they get like 10 different, like multi hundred person results, which is like the, the preeminent casual spike tournament. Do you know what I mean? Like people are going to go to that in their local area. Yeah, I agree. It's definitely more the the casual spike vein than a, than a series, a couple of grand prix in a row where it's like, oh, pros are traveling to go to these grand prix and things like that. Um, the regionals is always interesting because you you always have them. There's one or two that are won by totally random decks, and you're like, wow, how did that work? Seismic Great. swans. Yes, bring it. Scatter swans. Yeah. All right, dudes. So I think we should actually start talking about tweaking now. Um, so, like, I think the first section we should talk about is, like, why do it at all, right? Like, so why do you want to be looking at tweaking your deck and adjusting it? <clears throat> so, Shane, you talked earlier about deck selection versus tweaking a deck. And this is kind of the moment where that is, right? Because why would you tweak a deck instead of just picking a different deck? If I, if I think a particular deck is strong, right? Like, if I think, it, if, I think if it's not lacking a particular amount of power... <laughs> I'm going to want to bring it, but I'm going to want to potentially adjust the main deck and definitely the sideboard for what I think I'm going to be seeing uh, in the field, right? So, you know, right now, if the top decks are things like Is It Phoenix, Grixis Death Shadow, Burn, Dredge, Amulet Titan, you know, you want to either have a, an initial main deck strategy that's going to be short up against those decks, which is almost impossible, but at least have a sideboard plan for maybe the top five, six, seven, eight, you know, as many decks as you can have a sideboard plan for. Did that really answer your question? I don't think it did. I mean, my question is why, how do you decide to go with the flow and play the deck that you're already playing, play a deck that's part of the meta as opposed to changing to something that just totally attacks the meta uh, differently? So I I think when you're, when you're looking at a known or partially known meta and you're thinking about a deck that can go into this meta and punch with the best of them, you either have to think that your deck can game one compete fairly and win or sideboard plan is going to blow decks out of the water or be advantaged. So if your deck can't compete or can't sideboard into a competitive deck, probably play something else unless you're very confident in it. 
Yeah, I think there's something to be said to the concept of bringing a deck you're, you know, really well, right? Because, you know, of course you want to, you want to know your role. You want to know other people's roles. You want to understand how your deck matches up against theirs. But there's a certain point in time when you might have to shelve it and think about, you know, what else am I going to bring here, right? Do you think, do you think that that changes between LGS and big tournament meta? So my hypothesis would be that playing a deck that you know really, really well, it's going to get you better results. Like that, that skill delta is going to be much bigger when you're playing at an LGS level yes. than potentially if you bring a deck that's a mismatch to a big field tournament where you might face a ton of bad matchups in a row and the players are also generally maybe better than an LGS. Zach, what do you think about that? As someone who is doing the opposite of what you're suggesting, or I am bringing scred the deck i have known and loved for many years to a big tournament do you think i'm wrong like, and like i i don't i, I obviously like that personally or anything but do, do you think that what the choice i'm making is not correct for the meta or not correct for the tournament and i should maybe no. go with burn instead a deck i also play no i i i don't i don't think so i just think i'm just uh, i'm just kind of curious about what people think about that idea in general i think you should do what you want to do and also you are in some ways you're like such a master of that one archetype that it's like, you got to take it and go for it. You know what I mean? I mean, you have more games logged on that than any, than any of us have on all the decks that we play in that general. Correct, so I yes. think it's, so I think it's fine to, to go for it. And I think you should. And also, you know, Scred is, Red Prison is a deck that's getting results right now. Right. So in your particular case, I, I don't think that it's necessarily a meta mismatch, even if you think about it that way. But, you know, maybe someone is really good at counters company. I mean, we're not seeing a lot of counters company in any kind of respect right now. Maybe they kill it at their LGS, but now they're going to go up to the regional that you guys are going to. Do, do you guys think that that's one thing that you should think about a lot is that maybe it's more often that you fit in with the meta when you're playing at a big tournament as opposed to your LGS? I think something that you're touching on especially with this counter company example is pretty interesting because of where the meta is at right now and the role of cards like thing in the ice and how that affects creature strategies. I think there's something to be said about not only being really good with a deck, but on top of that, being able to compete competently with something people are less prepared for. So counters company might be an odd example because it perhaps actually is very poorly positioned but let's say you're really great at lantern control or at least have the patience to play it or ad nauseum for that matter. Whether or not they're super well positioned right now is perhaps debatable, but if everyone is expecting burn or dredge or phoenix at a tournament this weekend, then being able to do something that they're less prepared for could give you some points of equity. Yeah, I don't disagree, Stan. Let's get back to this kind of initial question, right? So like, why would you want to tweak? So let's say you have a strategy that you want to bring out, right? Like either you can't switch decks or you you really like what you've been playing. So why would you want to change your deck up? I think one reason you may want to tweak is because it can either improve your chances of winning games, but also because you have flexible spots in your plan that you can capitalize on by both staying within plan, but addressing what's expected at a meta. So that's one reason to tweak. Another reason to tweak is if you're a casual spike that's been playing modern for several years and you have the means to play a different deck and you know how to play it, as well as how to know your role in various matchups, then 
you're probably giving yourself the best shot at attacking a meta by looking at it from a holistic approach than rather from your lens of playing a single deck and knowing that in and out. Yeah, I mean, I think that it comes down to the strategy too. There's a bunch of decks that are really, really good at adapting to different metagames, and there are a bunch of decks that are, that basically aren't that great at adapting to different metagames, right? So <clears throat> there are decks like Storm that really doesn't have that much play. It's sort of like sometimes Storm is good, sometimes Storm is bad. The sideboard is generally going to be what it is for because they're all um, the sideboard's basically about shoring up your matchup against decks that bring in cards to hate you. And then if you think about that in contrast to a deck like Blue White Control or basically any deck that runs white, you know, they have access to all of those different kind of sideboard cards that help them uh, uh, shore up their matchup against graveyard decks, against decks that try to cast a lot of spells in a turn, against decks that try to burn them out, like cards that kind of, you know, white is sort of in modern, it's kind of has all the powerful hosers. And so at those two ends, it really depends. Like some decks, you really just can't tweak to change and you just have to do something else. And other decks, you can, you can really make adapt in a way that really fits the meta uh, on a week by week basis. Yeah, we'll actually talk a little bit about that later some more, Dave. I think it's a really good point right now. I think one reason I like to tweak a little bit is something that we've seen lately too is new cards. Like a new set gives you all sorts of reasons, but hopefully to tweak things up, like we've seen with these new Ravnica Allegiance cards being tested in burn decks. We've recently seen Creeping Chill from the last Ravnica set, you know, being immediately tested and proven in Dredge just a few months ago. Uh, Arclight Phoenix being tested and proven in new decks just a few months ago. So even if you have like a very established deck like Red Burn, you know, you're going to get new reasons to, to tweak things and test things. Yeah, I, I think a big reason for me is that as we discussed, the meta is always changing and new decks are popping up and decks are falling out of popularity. So a card you had in your deck that was very good because a certain number of decks are popular it might not be good when all of a sudden Phoenix, as we've mentioned once again, has come to popularity and all of a sudden this card that you had in main deck, which is killing it and blowing it up, is no longer very good against the new deck. Yeah, that's the fundamental, right, Zach? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like we you need to address what you're seeing and what's popular and what's having a larger meta share. You need to be able to bring a strategy and bring a plan that's going to work against that. So that's, I think, the fundamental why to tweak. Yeah, and the subhead to that fundamental is also knowing and understanding your worst matchups and what you're weak to and being able to consider how viable those matchups might be in the meta and whether or not you need to make decisions in the main or sideboard to sure that match up all right so i think that gets at a lot of reasons like to tweak and adjust your deck but i want to briefly touch on why not to tweak because i think that's probably just as important to talk about as why to in the first place so what are some reasons you guys you know have have felt tempted to like tweak things up and change things but then maybe your better judgment has said i really shouldn't mess with stuff right now so a big example with me is that in the, the scred deck, there's like a couple slots you can, you change around, or there's a few slots people spend on removal or what have you. And there was a while where I was playing, uh, a braid and I just hated it. I absolutely hated it. I felt like it wasn't able to kill the creatures I saw consistently. I felt like I was not seeing artifacts consistently and I just wanted to take it out and has having a bad time. And then I took it out and then I feel like every time afterwards I was seeing creatures that I could hit yes, and seeing right? artifacts. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. And I, I just feel like, it's bad to make knee-jerk reactions, and it's bad, like, well, this card was bad for, you know, these two weeks, now it's out. 
well, what, you played 10 games and it wasn't good? That's not really enough information to make a decision off of, right? Because you saw those decks. Yeah. Maybe you just shuffled poorly. Maybe it was random chance. Maybe your opponent just happened to draw the nuts every time and they went off. Yeah. I think a point I would maybe piggyback off of what Zach is talking about here, though, is like, it's sort of the inverse of what he's saying, <clears throat> which is you shouldn't do things as a knee-jerk reaction to small sample size. It's like a great fundamental principle for any game of chance. At the same time, you shouldn't necessarily hold on to cards that you don't understand what they're for. <laughs> yeah, very good okay? point, Dave. So if you, if you are someone who is looking at a lot of lists and trying to put together your own list and that's great. That's what, that's what lots of us do. Um, and you're trying to figure out what you can cobble together out of the cards that you have or the cards you can get a hold of. And there's something you see on the list that you're like, I don't know what matchup ruined halo is for. And it's a $50 card, for example, or something like that. Yeah. I don't think you should go out of your way to include something that you're not really sure what it's going to be used for or what matchup it's really good against. You should try to do some research online on Reddit or something like that and find out. But if you can't find out or it doesn't make sense for your meta, like go with your gut about asking questions about the card. Just make sure you you look into it. Yeah, like number one example of that is like surgical extraction, right? Yes. Like maybe like maybe now it's more understood, but like, you know, surgical if if you don't really know why you have it in your sideboard and have like a really precise plan on what to do with it, don't even think about buying that $45 card. Stan, remember like when we were talking about sample size and decision making and you like found the latest Pro Tour winners tweet, uh, Andrew Ellenbogen, and he was like, competitive magic is the art of correctly generalizing from sample sizes too small to draw real conclusions. So like, I think that kind of gets at it's, it's like te- no testing can be truly exhaustive, right? Yeah, and I think it's perhaps even unrealistic or a little disingenuous to expect a casual spike to be able to do 50 or 100 games with a single deck and consider exactly what their role is in every matchup. At a certain point, you have to trust your expertise and your judgment and make educated guesses, but also be willing to kill your darlings, either because, like Dave said, you don't fully understand a card's role in a deck, but also, likewise, if you think that you can do something better with a different piece of tech. Yeah. Yeah, don't clutch your pearls. Don't clutch your pearls. Don't kill your darlings. Don't cl- clutch your pearls. Anybody have any other writing cliches they want to get out there right now? It was a dark and stormy night. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow. It's who I am. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's an interesting point to remember that, you know, the thing that we rely on to get to large sample size is the play that other people have done with the decks that we play. And that's one of the things that's amazing about magic and has always been amazing about magic. I mean, I used to, you know, I used, I've been reading articles about magic strategy since like 1994 on Usenet. You know what I mean? Like, and there's always been great writing from people cataloging their, their decks, the decisions they made, the strategies that they did. So you can go out and do research on the deck that you have to kind of push against the small sample size idea. But, um, like Stan said too, you know, it does come down to you eventually to kind of generalize your experience as to what you want to have in a given situation. Yeah. And, and just to add to that, I feel like part of the community sort of talking about it and having it be, Oh, I tried this. This didn't work. And here's why. And I feel like that explanation of I felt this way when I drew it or it didn't work because of this has been huge. I mean, when I was a kid, I subscribed to Inquest magazine where they yeah. had like magic list and all the prices and everything and, just sort of 
hey, I'm playing this card and here's why. Or this is in my sideboard and it's for this. And then they talk about, I used it against this and it was like this. And I feel like that sort of advice, people talking about their actual experiences with cards is a really big part of how this all works. Yes. Inquest magazine, the the uh, magazine that famously said that Necropotence was the worst card in Ice Age, by the way, in 1995 or <laughs> whatever that was. so good now. Exactly. I mean, that, that, Nobody's ever going to play this card. this grudge for 15 years. I mean, that's what's awesome about Magic, right? It's an endless puzzle that everyone's solving together. Wow, they should hire you to do some marketing. Yeah, right? Let's talk about the meat of this, right? So, like, how do we actually tweak? So, I, I think... You know, briefly, we kind of talked about this earlier, but I think the, the primary way to, you know, quote unquote tweak is to pick the right deck, right? So like if you're, if your deck selection is probably going to be your, one of the most important decisions you make and have potentially the biggest impact on your success at a given event. And so like, you know, you can, you can try to do that by looking at what sort of common weaknesses, if any, are exhibited by some of the big players in the meta at the time. You know, like, do they struggle against graveyard hate? Um, are they weak to removal? Do you, you know, are they going to be weak to a powerful linear strategy or a combo that people aren't really equipped to fight right now? So like, I think like if you aren't seeing a lot of blood moons in decks, maybe it's time to run out scape shift. If there's simply not enough removal in the metagame right now, maybe you need to bring like a mid range deck or a control deck and just pick off the important creatures. But I think like the more important way probably is looking at things like your sideboard and main deck card selections, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the two fundamental places that you could can change what you're bringing. Like <clears throat> bringing a new deck is one totally different thing. But if you are on a strategy that you like and you feel like you just want to dial it in, there's really only two ways to do it. You, you can change the main deck or you can change the sideboard. So I, I think we should maybe start with changing your main deck. And we, we mentioned earlier how some decks have flex spots or, you know, three to four spaces in the deck that everybody is experimenting with and paying if they're a meta. So, for example, uh, Jund was running Kalitas from uh, the new, Zen- new Zendikar for a little bit. And that's a card that has yeah. sort of lost popularity because the meta shifted away from a strategy where it's good. So it's being aware of cards like that in your deck that were good because of a certain deck being good or good because of a certain archetype being around and being aware to change those out when things are moving. Yeah. I think that one one thing that's worth bringing up here really quickly is the way that you think about tweaking a main deck isn't always about hosing stuff, right? Like it's sometimes it's about making your deck have more two for ones in it because you want to be grindier and you want to have more card yeah. advantage. Sometimes it's about making tweaking it. So your deck is faster. Sometimes it's about tweaking it so that your deck is slower and has some more powerful cards at bigger, at bigger converted mana costs. That's kind of like the main way that you're probably going to tweak the main deck is to adjust the overall vibe of it for things outside of hosing specific um, kind of beatable strategies that are kind of loot that kind of lose to silver bullets. Yeah, I think that's smart, Dave. I think there's probably a couple different like levels of how one might tweak their main deck, right? So it's like, do I want to have main deck surgical extraction or do I want to have main deck rest in peace where you're like, I need to hose this? Yeah, is the meta so bad that I have to have something that hoses a specific kind of strategy in my main deck? Yeah, or is it something where it's like, I see enough targets under three CMC where I think abrupt decay is actually going to be better than assassin's trophy or 
do I want to have conditional or unconditional removal in my removal slots? So there's all kinds of like small ways rather than the giant hosers where it's like, like you said, is what am I seeing in the metagame and what am I able to do with the the answers that I might want to be playing? And I think you see that more in kind of a mid-range and a control strategy than you do with an aggressive strategy. Well, but aggressive strategies, I think that the the card that I think about in like Burn, for example, is Shard Volley. Like, yeah. how good, how how much do I want to be playing Shard Volley right now? Zach, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I think that Shard Volley is typically a card that I despised in the past and th- thought was just every time brutal, and I hated it, and I feel like every time I had lost the land to it, I was setting myself back, and it was just awful. Yeah. But with the rise of Light Up the Stage, all of a sudden, a one-man spell where I lose a land, the prospect isn't so daunting anymore. All of a sudden, it's actually very exciting, because I am playing a Shard Valley, not essentially for free, but much cheaper than it initially been, and with m- much higher tempo. Yeah, and also the other thing is, we're in a meta where decks are really fast. They're crazy fast, and so nobody cares if you sacrifice a land to get that lot, to get, to be able to play Lava Spike 9 through 12, right? Yeah. How else might you kind of look to tweak your main deck? Because the main thing I think about is like my removal package, but I know like you control players probably think of different ways than I do. Oh yeah, there's so many things. It's like how many sweepers do I need? How many? How many? I mean, we were talking a little bit earlier off mic, and maybe some of it made the B-roll of the episode about cryptic command and blue moon, and how many cryptic commands you can play in the metagame right now for a spell that's really powerful but really hard to cast at four CMC. So looking at all those big spells in uh, in control that. Figuring out how many you can afford to have versus how many, um, one, one thing to think about is like in control that happens is in certain metagames, you need more than four path to exiles. And so you end up with condemn in your main deck. Stan? Yeah. One thing about control that I think is important is the idea and plan behind those decks is to control the game state. And if you can analyze the average game state of a given meta, how you control that changes as well. So an example might be main deck rest in peace or main deck relic of progenitus. Generally an odd choice, but if a meta is on average operating around and out of the graveyard, suddenly that becomes ostensibly a sweeper. Yeah, I mean, I also think that it can be a little bit, it can even be more subtle than those strategies that just completely nerf something, right? Because you could talk about in blue-white control how many copies of timely reinforcement you should play main main deck in a given meta. And that's a big way to shift things is, hey, if I feel like I'm going to be seeing a ton of burn, I'm going to throw an extra timely reinforcement to my main deck so that I can come back from that and also have got blockers and all that kind of stuff. So... There's so many, there's so many ways to do it. And I think as you get more and more into the reactive archetypes, the more that you have to think about that going into a tournament, right? So linear aggro decks have less space. Mid range decks have a little more. Control have the most. Dave had mentioned uh, what sweepers you run, what sort of removal you run. And I think an important thing to point out right now is if you expect a meddling mage or a similar card that can stop you from casting a certain card is to diversify your threats. So I personally run three Anger of the Gods main board, but if I was going into a meta that I thought had Meddling Mage, I might diversify and run two Anger and one Sweltering Suns or some other permutation of that. So if you're running uh, Wrath of God, maybe also run Day Judgment. Yeah. I also want to add to that notion, a cantrip suite is something that can be tweaked as well based on the average speed or metagame of a format because whether you want to cast spells at instant speed to do things really quickly and draw cards at your opponent's end step 
or if you have time to set up an ancestral visions because you're playing a mid to late game strategy might adjust how you're casting those one mana draw spells as well a lot of ways to to tweak the main deck right but it's all about adjusting your plan and you can even do that. I mean, we talked most about like mid range and control decks, but definitely on the aggressive end of things too. Like we saw people say, you know, I think I need to have a bedlam reveler in like my two flex spots, right? Versus some more burn. Like I feel like I'm going to have time maybe, or I'll be able to avoid some graveyard hate and these bedlam revelers will do some work for me and refill my hand. So even the most linear and most aggressive decks are going to have at least a few flexible spots for you to make some fairly important decisions in. So what's the other way you can tweak a deck? Your sideboard. Oh, you got that sideboard. You got that sideboard. 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 My son is sideboard. also named Sideboard. <laughs> I understand that reference. Thank you. No, so like, I mean, I think what the most important thing about the sideboard is, right, is just like the main deck, is you can't always have the luxury of pivoting around between decks. So your best bet is really going to involve, in my opinion, your best bet is really going to involve tweaking that sideboard to really give you a plan against the decks you expect to face the most. And it's really one of the hardest things to get right, right? Right. Oh my God, yes. I, I think the most stressful moments I've had in competitive magic is figuring out how many sideboard cards I want to bring in and giving myself good reasons not to just bring in 15 different cards and yeah. chopping up my main deck plan. But that's because I'm a crazy person and not because I make good decisions in modern. You have literally like dozens of matchups, right? And you have 15 cards total to try to shore up all of these matchups. And it's like really important to remember you're going to play more sideboarded games than ones with the original 60. So sideboarding is something that's truly essential to get right, and it's almost impossible to, especially in modern, when there's so many different kinds of decks out there. So how do you how do you guys typically approach sideboarding? Like, what do you think some ways to think about sideboarding are? One way I do it is coming up with premeditated plans about matchups that I'm aware of or concerned with. So I know sometimes when people do tournament reports or deck techs, they'll actually post sideboard guides and say, against humans, I take out these cards and bring in Anger of the Gods and Supreme Verdict or, you know, along those lines. I don't always find, I don't always find sideboard guides for the decks that I'm playing. And sometimes I want to come up with them myself because that's going to adjust my learning and will shape my understanding of a meta. But sometimes, to answer your question, one way to approach side, one way to approach sideboarding is actually knowing what's out there and having a premeditated plan for it. Yeah, and I think this just goes into ter- like preparation, right? Especially if you're going to play a big tournament, to do it in advance and write it down. You're allowed to look at your notes in between games, and so it's worth taking the half hour or so because big tournaments are tiring. And so if in advance you can say, I'm going to do this when I face this deck, that'll help a little bit. Yeah, so I guess I kind of want to get at the nitty-gritty, right? So, like, how are you actually making your decisions? Are you trying to, like, shore up your weak matchups? Are you trying to make your adequate matchups into winnable matchups? Like, what are you thinking about? So, for me, I personally think that if you have a very weak matchup, it's not worth relying on your sideboard card to shore it up. So if I think I have a matchup that is maybe 40, 
60 in their favor or even lower, I am just going to ignore that and assume if I see them, I'm going to lose to them. And that I'm going to try to short my matches that are a little bit better because I'm only seeing, like you said, there's only 15 cards in your sideboard and there's no world in which you're bringing in all of those. So if you're only bringing in eight cards, what are your real chances of seeing them? So I would rather them be more impactful in a game in which I'm already a little more favored than try to bail me out of a game that I'm not doing so great in. Yeah, I mean, I think even if a deck is like, let's say it's 10% of a competitive metagame, right? That means you have a, if you play 10 rounds, you have a 1 in 10 chance of facing that one time. And so if that's a straight up nearly unwinnable matchup for you, why bring in like eight cards? You know, why bring like eight cards into your sideboard that are designed for that specific matchup when it's not really enough of the field for you to care about it? Yeah, absolutely. You really are in this weird area where it's, what percentage of the meta is this deck that you are totally going to lose against? And is it worth sort of working around it then? And I'm sure there's a some sort of number somewhere where it makes sense. But right. unless I think a deck is super dominant, if you're just going to lose to it, hope you miss it. And I think that's sort of what you have to do. Because there's no way you're, like Shane just said, there's no way you're going to dedicate half your sideboard to a matchup that's already bad for you. Yeah. Let me just throw out something for scale too. And that is that if you look at goldfish and you believe the numbers that they have for the meta by, you know, vaguely, the, um, the highest that a deck gets to is about 15% of the meta in modern. That's a real number. Like what Shane threw out there is that 10% kind of meta share is normal or is very, very high, I guess is what I mean. You don't really have to contort yourself around to do that. It's not like standard where quite frequently there'll be four decks and one of them is 40% of the field. Yeah, not only that, but I opened up Goldfish right now. And according to them, the most popular deck is at Phoenix is 7.45% of the field. So your chances in a nine-round event, the odds are that you might see one. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those things where as you move up the ranks, you know you're going to see the the better decks more frequently. But broadly, I think our point stands is you can't plan to face your bad matchup or two or three bad matchups that much. So I personally try to be as – there's a couple of ways I look at it, right? Is if I have a deck that will fold to hate – really, really badly, I will want to have more slots against those kinds of cards. So like if you're playing Dredge, you're going to run four Nature's Claims right Right. now because you need to be able to fight through the hate. But unless you're playing a deck like that, you probably want to have pretty flexible answers that allow you to answer a wider variety of the field. That's how I think about it, at least. I get what you're saying, and I totally agree. But how does someone understand how to tweak that way? So you're saying have these diversified answers, but how do you know when to bring them in or, or know when this isn't good enough for me? Because like we said, you can't just, you know, go 2-2 two, two one week and go, this deck's crap, I need to change these 10 cards. That That's bad. Mm-hmm. But how do we know to think about these diversified threats and how do we know when to start bringing them in? I think you're kind of talking about like proactive versus reactive, right? Absolutely. So- I think a lot of the ways we've been talking has been proactivity, right? And that's by looking at what's happening in the metagame through magic, uh, magic, uh, website lists, through MTG goldfish lists, through MTG top eight lists, where you can say, here's what's winning. Here's what I can expect to see. Here's the strategies that are happening around me. And then you can say, what are these strategies weak to, right? And it, 
it's tempting for us to try to get into the nitty gritty of what those might be. I think that's kind of another episode altogether. We do talk about that when we kind of talk about our individual deck lists, right? Where it's just like, how do, how would we attack this? But I think that's kind of a proactive strategy, right? Is saying, what do I expect to see? And planning accordingly for that by like Stan said, making a sideboard guide or saying, you know, what am I going to, what am I going to have in my suite of answers against the the field that I anticipate? And then there's kind of the reactive tweaking, which is another subject as well, right? Which is I've been playing this for a couple of weeks and some of these things I'm bringing in all the time. And some of these things are just sitting in my sideboard. Yeah. So are you sort of saying that if you have a card in your sideboard that you are consistently not bringing in and you are consistently just staring at that maybe you should switch it out for something else they feel would be more effective against the field? I mean, I think that's really actually challenging to answer, Zach, right? Which is, yeah, at what point do you, do you shelve something in your sideboard and say, this isn't good enough when, you know, that's when something like affinity strikes, when you're like, well, these stony silences aren't doing much for me. Yeah, but at the same time, you know, you're trying to get a bead on what you think is going to be there and you sacrifices have to be made. I mean, that's part of the, part of the beauty of the way that modern has evolved is that, yeah, there's a bunch of really powerful, uh, sideboard hosers and things like that. But at the same time, people have to choose to play them. And if they choose not to play them and you're in the right, mo- right place at the right time, you can just kind of have this awesome run. Or on the other side, if you're the only person who's packing stony silences, all of a sudden you go seven and two in a tournament <laughs> when everybody's running at infinity because they didn't think it was going to be there. So. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think the fundamental thing is it's really impossible to predict. I think anyone who says otherwise is lying to you, which is why I kind of like being able to have a broad a sideboard as possible, but it's impossible to kind of really, really guess exactly what you're going to face. Especially early on in rounds when people are going to have their, their rogue strategies or their pet decks yeah. or their brews. Their rat, rat moon decks and their Nahiri Jeskai deck and all kinds yes. of Yes. Yes. These are all great decks. I would do anything to do a deck dive down on rat moon one day. I have all the pieces and I just haven't put it together yet. I've, pl- I've played it. I've played it at LGS like twice. I think it was fun. Rat moon. Burn down, down, down. So I think that gets at what you were saying, Zach, kind of gets at an important point, right? Which is, to me, I think you don't just want to copy a sideboard from like a recent winning list because the metagame is going to shift on a week-to-week and a location-to-location basis. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's totally worth looking at a, a list that did well, like looking at their sideboard, but then figuring out how that would correlate to your meta. So if you're looking at a sideboard and you see you know, they have something like four Sorcerer Spyglass – Maybe that's not going to fit in with what you're doing or your idea, but you can think about why they use that and how that slot would fit in with what you're doing. And Dave, what you said earlier is super important too, right? Because like if you're looking at someone's sideboard and they're like, okay, I've got three stain the mind in this sideboard. And you're like, I wonder what they bring that in for. Eh, who cares? I'm going to put it in there anyway. And you've got right. your clueless. Like, what's the point? Yeah, and then you have to go out to like Card Kingdom and buy three Stay in the Mines, and you, you can't even find them. And so it's like, yeah, it's it's a whole it's a whole thing. I think it's better for you to have cards there that you understand. Yeah, it's probably more important than even having the right cards is have cards you understand. So I briefly want to touch on kind of like LGS tweaking again, and we kind of got at this concept that I've fallen prey to before, which is like you know if you have like those three Tron players. 
you know, that guy and lady that always are bringing Tron and you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to bring some anti-Tron cards because I think I'm going to face them. Or like, there's those three Jun players. So I'm going to bring my anti-mid-range cards. Like, I think that's actually kind of a trap because, you know, even like, let's say like you have 12 to 16 players. I know you guys at Dice Dojo frequently have like, what, 16, 20 players, right? Yeah. Sometimes a little more. Yes. I mean, you're going to face, you're going to face three of them. I think that if you are kind of like hedging your board against a actually small percentage of the field, even if they show up, like my LGS has kind of a random rotating cast of characters that come through. Like I've even like done something where I've brought like a mid-range deck and then a burn deck. And if I see the three Tron players, I'll be like, okay, I'm playing burn tonight. And then I don't face any of them, of course, because the odds really aren't there. Yeah. So think about it this way. Just to do the math, right? If there are three players out of 16... And you are a fourth player out of the 16. So they're really three players out of 15. Um, that means that you are 20% to see one of those, those decks one time in a three round tournament. One time. Correct. Yeah. But Zach, what do you think about that, that as far as metagaming at the LGS goes? I think both of you guys had really interesting points, but I, I'm going to continue off what Dave said, where you're likely to see some of these people, but like Shane said, you shouldn't metagame against a certain deck. So there's people here on Tron, right? But there's probably other people here on big man strategies or of a wider archetype. So you're not going to sideboard against Tron. You're going to sort of sideboard into a bigger archetype that Tron fits into. And I don't think that's incorrect as long as there are more than a couple people on that at your LGS. What's the number you think you need to get to to make it worth it? I think it depends on how people are playing, number one, and how many rounds you're going. But I think, like you said, if you have a 20% chance of seeing a certain archetype, I think you should have a couple cyber cards for it. Keeping in mind that if something is 25% of the meta or 20% of the meta at your LGS and you bring in a whole bunch of sideboard cards to face them, you're probably actively hurting yourself because if they're 20% of the meta, you're 80% likely to not play them. Is, is what yes. the inverse of that is though. So you have to keep in mind that the, the other side of that probability is actually very, very big. Right. Which is why you dedicate only 20% of your sideboard to them. Okay. So this, I think is actually an interesting principle that you could probably try to mess around with and see if it worked. So what you're talking about right now, Zach, is very similar to in poker. There's a concept called pot odds that is kind of like, okay, the amount that I'm betting into a pot should be based off of the amount that I am likely to win it. And so uh, that idea of, okay, a rule of thumb is put 20% of my sideboards towards a deck that I'm 20% likely to see, I don't hate it. But what is 20% of a sideboard, right? It's it's uh, three cards. Three cards. So, oh, interesting okay. thought. But I have three Dragon's Claw on my sideboard. And right. that's for the 20% of burn, I see. Yeah, I, th- I mean, so maybe that's an interesting way to kind of yardstick it that um, you can uh, use to experiment with a little bit. Yeah, but also, I mean, like, honestly, if even when I go to the same game store every week, I would see different people. So it's like, it's a, it's a fun mental exercise. But honestly, I think it's really more important for us to talk about tweaking for a large tournament. Because that's going to be the metagame broadly you're going to see anyway, over time. Yeah, although, real quick, and in, in, I will say in LGS... Again, too, is you have to keep in mind that the the different vibe of an LGS is that generally people want to play interactive decks. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. That's very true. And an LGS, yeah, the spikes spikes love interactive decks. Yeah, spike casual spikes love interactive decks. Real spikes love broken decks. They like winning. Yeah, they like winning. But and what happens is at big me- at big tournaments you end up with KCI being a menace, whereas at L- LGSs you you never play it. 
or you only play it twice in six months. Well, right. There's a little more of a someone being upset with you or, or people not saying you're not fun to play against. And when you're playing at LGS or maybe you're winning at max, what, 10, 20 more bucks than you put in, where right. in a tournament, there's a lot more money at stake. So there's more right. incentive to not care about if someone says you're not fun to play against. So I would just keep that in mind at the LGS level is like the really like degenerate, broken, expensive decks that pop up and stay legal in modern for like four months. Sometimes <laughs> it's unlikely to be picked up. Uh, by LGS is just because they cost money and they're not fun to play and all that kind of stuff. Shane, so how do you see the difference for LGS metagaming versus big tournament metagaming and sideboarding and tweaking? Well, I think it's good. We, we talked about a ton of the ways that we would assess the, the larger metagame, right? So we, we, we'd do some research, we'd be proactive, we'd think about what the metagame is actually looking like, and think about how we'd want to attack it. So, you know, look at the recent tournament results. Um, I think listening to content creators like us, uh, but actually probably maybe a little bit more experienced to see what the pros are saying on social media, because people do like following pros. So they're going to listen to those podcasts. They're going to read those articles on SCG, on Channel Fireball, on TCG Player. Um, if you keep track of what buzz is out there, I think you're really going to have an understanding of what trends are looking like and also maybe even stay a week ahead. Because, like, you know, people read those SCG premium articles where they're like, what would you play this weekend? And, you know, the some of those players there are like, I would play X, I would play Y. And people think they they like to follow what the bet player is better than them, inclu- you know, including me. I, I like to look at what players better than me are doing and think about, is that something that I think is the right choice? Zach, what are you thinking as far as like going into this first large tournament? What, how you're planning a metagame for it? Or are you just going with expertise? My exclusive, very cool tech that I've been thinking about. Should I give it away and uh, hamper myself in this upcoming tournament? No, I think it's a really good, really good example, right? Like, so what is someone going to their first mid-sized, you know, big, big tournament? How are you approaching it? Yeah, so um, I gave this example earlier. Um, in Scred, uh, you have anywhere from two to four flex spots, depending on how you view the deck and how you feel, etc. So in my two spots, I have a braid right now. And for me, it's been pretty good, inconsistent, but sometimes very fun. But I think that right now I've been playing against a lot of Phoenix, both in paper and online, and it's a matchup I struggle with, because I struggle with killing a thing in the ice early because scred can't kill it until turn four earliest and i have found i've been thinking such theorizing that maybe it's time to bring in lava coil over a braid and that's something i've been testing online to good results and something i'm thinking about bringing to this big tournament if i'm worried about seeing phoenix so phoenix is a card that lava coil is good against because exiles but it's also good against both drake and thing in the ice because it kills them on turn two where scred and bolt do not zach I like the idea of Lava Coil there, but what about like the other like maybe 13 cards? Like how are you, let's say you just had to start a new sideboard from scratch for Scred, right? Like how are you making your decisions for what you're planning on seeing at the tournament and how you want to attack those decks or those strategies? So I think for me, the way I'm viewing it is any matchup that is bad for me, I can't try to shore up. My deck is so focused on what it's doing. And so what's an example of a deck that you're kind of like saying, I'm not going to try to fix it for? It's weird to say, but Tron to a degree, because I'm running Dampening Sphere and I'm running Molten Rain, but those cards aren't for Tron. Those cards are for other decks that are also weak to those cards. And they also just happen to be good against Tron. 
Right. And but, for me, yeah. I feel like that deck can just play a turn three Karn and I'm okay. I'm done. I can't like I bolt that and then then they play afterwards another Karn or they play a Worm Coil or they play a World Breaker, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I feel like the cards I have just have happen to be incidentally good, but I am not trying to shore up that matchup in any way. Okay. So you're trying to make your 50-50 shots better. Exactly, exactly. Which is why something like uh, versus Grixis Death Shadow, that's why I'm bringing in Molten Rain, so I can maybe take them off red permanently, or maybe I can destroy the one island they fetched, etc. And Dampening Sphere is more for Storm, which is also a pretty good matchup, in my opinion, because you have the spot removal and because you have main deck relic. And for Phoenix, too, right? Sure, exactly. Or Blue, anyway, Blue Phoenix, but... So Zach and Zach and Stan, who you guys are both heading to this, you know, two hundred person tournament this weekend, are you just kind of looking at like the the top decks on the list? So you you know, we talk about the meta game as it changes every week. Are you just saying like I wanna have a plan against the top five decks? Are you saying I wanna have a plan against the top five decks that doesn't leave me cold to maybe the next five? Like what are you really thinking? Are you trying to be surgical or are you trying to be more broad? So my approach in general is I like a broader sideboard because I also like decks that don't necessarily have very bad matchups. So while, for instance, if I play Mono Red Phoenix, which is similar to Burn, I think it's closer to Burn than the Blue Red Phoenix deck is, that deck has, you know, a 50-50 matchup against a wide portion, a wider portion of the field than, say, something like Blue Moon, which is just going to be pretty bad against certain strategies or, or control any control deck for that matter is going to be pretty bad against certain strategies i think burn especially an explosive burn deck that can have a turn three kill is probably going to have a good shot of punishing an opponent who stumbles even if the matchup is traditionally unfavored for me so having a broader sideboard that might be able to give me a few extra percentage points against a lot of decks is more in line with how i perceive the deck's plan executes itself I may or may not agree with that sentiment, but I appreciate the thought process behind it. I mean, we've talked about this. I think that the Arclight Burn deck um, has some pretty glaring weaknesses as opposed to the Is It Phoenix deck, which is, I think, more of an even matchup against the field. So so you asked me about what's my cyborg plan for this big tournament? Do I want to be surgical or do I want to be broad? And my response is I want to be, I want to be broad because I think Burn's plan has a lot of good to fair matchups that's a good answer yeah i like that answer and just like the local game store stuff you know even if you bring the entirely right 75 and like you know right meaning you assessed what you thought the metagame was it even was what the metagame was like let's say you predicted it perfectly you're like 10 percent phoenix eight percent amulet you know five percent burn and you and you plan perfectly and you have your main deck right and your sideboard right modern is huge pairings are random you are not going to see what you expect to see and and you might just lose that day but it's important to not be results oriented in that way i think so guys this is another long episode uh talking about tweaking and adjusting things for the meta game so yeah i mean we learned a little bit why it's different at the lgs versus the tournament level but maybe secretly not um and i think it's important to remember ways in which you can assess the metagame and develop plans in order to try to address it. And remember that none of your plans are going to be perfect and that it's important to at least have the plan considered and come with one and it may or may not work out. 
but there's all sorts of things that that govern your success at a tournament uh, than just your sideboard and your main deck selections. I think that was pretty beautiful, Shane. And this is a good opportunity to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to go into the wind down for this week, where we've got a question from a listener, and we're all excited to respond to it. Would you consider this the best part of the show, or? Frankly, it absolutely is. So you guys know how I was in Indianapolis last weekend? Yeah. I In Motor City, sure. Yeah, I, I just don't think that's Motor City. But I stayed the <laughs> night there. It's Brownsville, actually. I stayed the night there. And uh, I stayed with this dude named Lonnie, who I had previously never met or spoke to. And it was basically a friend of a friend who asked if I could spend the night in the stranger's house. And he let me do it. And we got along great. I really liked him and his pets and his partner. And it was an awesome weekend for magic. Sweet. That's great. uh, I found out after the fact that he was taking some credit for my 33rd place finish because I was very well rested as opposed to taking a three-hour drive to Indianapolis the morning of a tournament. Yeah, I mean, you, you stayed at his luxurious his luxurious digs. I mean, you woke up refreshed, so. Yeah, I mean, it's the one time Shane and I went to a tournament in Indianapolis, we drove there the morning of, and I went 0-4 drop, so, you know. <laughs> God, that I, was a miserable experience. It was miserable. That was just... That was truly questionable. I like how we we like the mid like the midnight before we were like, oh yeah, we lose an hour. Oh yeah, we need to leave at four thirty. Uh oh. <laughs> anyway. Oh, we're recording. Oh wow. Okay. So shout out to friend of the show Lonnie. Big thanks for giving me a place to live last weekend. But more importantly, he submitted a question for all of us, and I'm going to read it really quick, and then we're going to take turns responding to it. Lonnie asks. Why do you guys each like modern so much that you made a podcast specifically for it? Stan, answer it. I want to know. Why Why are you making this podcast specifically for it? So for me, modern captures what I have loved about MTG since I was a little boy and first learned how to play the game when I was 12 or 13 years old, which is I feel a connection to the decks that I build and play, and they aren't necessarily an extension of my personality, but I feel really close to them because I bought them and I think about them a lot. And I just love owning this small artifact that also has a little bit of monetary value. So being able to have a collection of cards that I can play with for months, if not years at a time, that I care a lot about because I love this game, really captures the spirit of all of Magic and Modern being both an eternal format and just cheaper than vintage and legacy makes it way more realistic for me to have this lasting connection with the cards that I, you know, think about constantly and invest my hard earned money for. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Lonnie, thanks for this question. I also know Lonnie from the something awful forums. Um, somehow this thing is still around and we still talk about magic on there. So what's up, dude? And, um, yeah, so why do I like Modern so much? I made a podcast specifically for it. Um, to answer Lonnie's question, it's mainly because all my friends primarily play Modern. Um, I think none of us have the mental fortitude to, or pocketbooks to want to keep up with standard. For me though, I like the fact that it changes more slowly. I can, I can pay attention to it and feel 
rewarded for paying attention to it more easily than I think I did in standard. Um, my investments feel more worthwhile and I feel more willing and apt to say, I'm just going to spend this hundred dollars to finish off this deck because I know that almost certainly some cards will go up, some cards will go down. So my investment feels worth it. It feels really rewarding to stay active in the format because you get better and you learn what other people are trying to accomplish and you understand what you're trying to accomplish more in it. So there's that level up feeling that you get pretty often as you play it more. And also I like the fact that for a stable format, it is actually super dynamic. A deck like Jun does stay around. A deck like Tron does stay around, but then we blink our eyes and Is It Phoenix shows up, you know, or, uh, or Dredge gets a new card that takes it back up to a tier one strategy. And I think that's a really cool thing about a format that is supposedly pretty static. So there's, there's always something to learn. Shane, you took all of the reasons. I apologize. Now, I don't know if, if Zach or I have reasons to give, but I will say, I think that for me, I'll keep it pretty short. The main thing is that kind of what Shane said, which is basically like, I don't have the the time and attention to hook into standard in the same way. And I actually find that standard is more expensive to play than, than modern because I can play the decks for a long time. And so I just kind of, when I got back into magic, I played limited for a long time and I kind of needed a place to to turn my cards that I opened into value. And so eventually I just started turning them into modern staples. I also think that the format is really cool because it's this mix of sort of casual-ish people who have their kind of hobby decks or their pet decks that they love and that are, and then there's the kind of really competitive people who change decks and are always buying the most powerful thing. But the thing is that, that the people um, with the pet decks can win in this format. And that's something that I think standard doesn't really have. I think that's something that kind of other formats don't have. So you get this really diverse kind of like selection of decks that you can play and learn and, and kind of win with. The other thing I would say really quick is if you think about why we like modern so much that we started a podcast, I think that that explains, we've talked about that a little bit, but the reason that I think we really started a podcast is because the four of us were having a lot of good discussions about modern in general on Slack and we just kind of felt like it would be fun for us to record those kind of for ourselves as we sit down and talk through things that we think oh, you would don't make want us better you at don't playing. You want that podcast money? <laughs> I know we're chasing those podcast dollars and we can't wait for Blue Apron to, to put a, an ad on here or whatever. But really what we're trying to do is, is. I'm a HelloFresh man. Right. HelloFresh. It is a little bit faster than Blue Apron. Uh, we're trying to learn from each other and become better players. And we just felt like it would be interesting to share that with everybody else in the modern community to see if they could learn, to see if they could contribute to help us better as well. And so, you know, that's why we started the podcast itself. Me undies, please get at us. <laughs> I do want to touch on one little thing you guys both mentioned in regard to standard and limited, which is ever since we started this podcast, my brain no longer has room to think about any other formats except for modern because I want to both be a good host and, uh, you know, have great conversations with you. So as a result, I haven't played arena in like a month or more. And I used to love standard and I used to love drafting and I love all of magic. I think we all have that in common. I think our listeners have that in common. Yeah. But, you know, just out of commitment to the show and trying to be as good as I can about as a, you know, a pseudo expert on modern, or at least have good conversations with other experts on modern, I no longer can 
play any other format. Conversations with experts and us. Yeah, exactly. And us. Zach, what do you think? What's your what do you like so much about modern? So I've been playing Magic since seventh edition, and for a while when I was growing up, I when I was young, I got a bunch of older cards from a family friend. So I was always the one that had the most cards, always knew the rules, etc. And I was always like the best of my friend group. And then when I moved, I met these new people and I played this guy against his deck and he just crushed me, blew me out of the water. And these weren't old, you know, super broken cards or anything. These were just cards that he figured out how to put together. And sort of just going from, oh yeah, I own 400 cards and I built this, you know, 250 card singleton deck very casual to I have this tight 60 that I practiced sort of blew my mind. And then I took a break from Magic, you know, played casually, but only kitchen table. And then when I came back sort of around Time Spiral, Cold Snap era, I was very into it and digged in. And I just fell in love with these cards and began wanting to play them more and more. And then, you know, was went from kitchen table to realizing there was this dynamic format called Modern. And there was a deck established that had cards that I'd fallen in love with back in the day, aka Scred, Blood Moon, etc. So... Seeing that there was a way to focus a strategy and be sort super digged into what you're doing and playing with cards that I felt nostalgic for it just hooked me. I love that answer. I, and I, by the way, I'd like to give my own example with this answer because the reason that I actually started playing modern was so, so similar, Zach, which is I came into possession to a play set of, uh, of collector's edition, not a collector's edition, uh, limited edition lightning bolts. So nice. beta alpha beta lightning bolt. So I had a play set of four of those. And my favorite deck when I played originally was, uh, basically the deck. So I like to play the deck that had, you know, Sarah Angel and, uh, lightning bolt and, uh, swords of plowshares and counterspell and all that stuff. And so I started looking around for a deck to play lightning bolt in and I found that it's only legal and modern and I could put together a deck. Uh, that was basically just guy control. And so that was what I started with there. And it, my collection just kind of built from there, but it, I kind of did start collecting cards to build this deck just because I had these, uh, black border lightning bolts that I wanted to be able to play. Yeah, exactly. I played this w- weird red green Aurochs deck with earth and goo back in the ice age time spiral standard days. And like, it was only a kitchen table casual thing, but I remember just loving it and crushing my friends with it. And, and to hear that there was some, even remotely competitive analog to it just lit up my mind like whoa this thing that i spent all this casual fun time doing it could maybe win a tournament and i have some experience with it let's go into it let's dig in guys i I feel like i learned something about you that i never knew before so it's pretty refreshing to hear the child side about the young men who fell in love with magic when they were little ice age boys and have since become casual spike adults <laughs> i think this is a good time to wrap up the show thanks again to my co-hosts but more importantly thanks to everyone for your ongoing support remember if you have questions for any of us on the pod feel free to tweet at the dive down or email the dive down at gmail.com all one word thank you as always to the bands nowhere and space blood for letting us use their music and remember, if you're over in Milwaukee this weekend playing at the Nerd Rage Modern 5K, try to find Zach or myself. We'll post a picture of what we look like on the Dive Down Twitter account so you know how to spot us. But feel free to stop by, say hello. We will have more Dive Down pins to give out to 
any fans or uh, the opponents that we beat. And, you know, to try to make them feel a little better, we got a little goodie for you. <laughs> <laughs> and see you all next week. And by the way, the pins, in case you guys haven't seen them, the pins are the logo. We also have a pin that says mid-range is dead. And we have another pin that says never playing control again. Uh, just in case you don't really want to rep our logo, that's fine. We have some fun catchphrases that you could wear instead. All right. Thanks again, everybody. My co-host, I love you. Our listeners, I love you too. See you on the flip side. Night-night. Bye-bye. One love. One love.